Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's a picture you're probably familiar with from Germany in the mid-1930s. It was taken in a shipyard in Hamburg amongst a sea of German workers with their arms outstretched in the Nazi salute. But one man obstinately refuses. He's standing with his arms crossed in a defiant gesture of opposition to the Nazis. Now, every few months, this picture goes viral and it's fast becoming one of the most iconic symbols of bravery and anti-fascism. Now, if you haven't seen the picture, just click on the link in the show notes below. I don't think anyone who looks at the image can't but admire the courage of the man who resists making the Nazi salute. However, history has this habit, as I'm sure you know by now, of complicating things. The picture was taken in 1936, as I say, and the man has been identified as Auguste Landmesser. And the more we learn about him, the more complicated the story gets, because Landmesser had actually been a member of the Nazi party from 1931 to 1935, just a year before that picture was taken. This means he presumably voted for the Nazis in the key German elections of 1932 and 1933. However, in the mid-1930s, he fell in love with a Jewish woman, Irma Echter, which saw him expelled from the Nazi party for defying their racial doctrines. Now, in bringing this up, I'm not trying to downplay his act at all. Landmesser had guts, bravery and courage that I'd like to think I have, but I probably don't. In many ways, the fact he had once been a Nazi makes it more impressive. But I think this story and the fact he had once been a Nazi gets to the heart of history in many ways. We often find it hard to grapple with the fact that human beings have an ability to hold contradictory ideas, or at least ideas that seem contradictory to other people and later generations. It also highlights the fact that people can change, that their experiences of life alter their views of the world and how they act. I would go as far as to say that the one consistent thing about human beings is our inconsistencies. Yes, when we look at the past in particular, we strive to draw straight lines between people's past and present and how they act, rather than looking at the messy reality of the way the world works. 
how people hold contradictory ideas and basically muddle on through life. Like it would be really easy for us if Landmesser had been opposed to all aspects of Nazism and that if he had always been an anti-fascist, but that doesn't seem to have been the case. I think it's fair to say that he must have had a lot of views that we would find objectionable if he was a member of the Nazi party for four years, but it does seem that it changed. Now I bring up this story as a way of an introduction to the topic of this episode, a little known man called Edward O'Rourke. His is not a name you expect to encounter in Eastern European history of the 19th century, but he was a member of the Irish diaspora and a community rarely talked about the Irish emigrants who ended up in the Russian Empire. His family were members of the Russian nobility, but he himself would defy much of his upbringing and early beliefs when he became an early and vocal critic of the Nazis. However, his story is not one of daring do's like we covered in the story of the French resistance, but more a story of how people make hard choices to stand against the prevailing attitudes of the day and even sometimes their own instincts. There's also a really interesting subplot to this episode about how an Irish family became part of the Russian nobility. Now, before we get too far into the episode, let's do the intros. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Finn Dwyer, and this is the Irish History Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you're enjoying the episode. Now, my guest today is familiar to many of you. Derek Scally is an Irish Times journalist based in Berlin. Now, back in June, he published an article in the regular Irishman's diary column in the Irish Times called A Warning from History, Edward O'Rourke's Stand Against Nazi Tyranny. Now you can find links to his article in the show notes below, but that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we get into Edward O'Rourke's story, if you're a regular listener to the show, you are probably expecting something very different, and that's the series on the history of podcasting, which was due to start this week. Every so often, it happens that the wheels come off the cart in terms of research of a series, and that happened in that series on the history of podcasting. I have all the ingredients for a couple of great episodes, some really good interviews with top podcasters and samples of really early shows that were released nearly 20 years ago. But I need more time to get it right, so it's looking now that that won't be out till about September because... I won't have time to release it as I have another series that I've been making that's about to start soon. You see, when you're listening to this episode, I will be in a studio halfway through recording the audio version of my upcoming book, A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders. That's been released by HarperCollins on September the 14th, but starting in early August, I'll be releasing a series of podcasts based on the stories that didn't make the final cut and were edited out of the book for space reasons. But rather than let them gather dust or whatever the equivalent is for something sitting on my computer, these are now going to be released in that yet-to-be-named series. I was thinking of calling it Offcuts, but that's not exactly enthralling, is it? If you've any good ideas, please let me know. But they're great stories, including an account of a survivor of the Great Hunger that lived into the 20th century, the first British royal visit to Ireland that didn't involve landing with an army, but unsurprisingly had a lot of family drama around it, plus a change. There's also a podcast on a completely forgotten woman who was a neighbour from hell, but very briefly made her own mark on Irish history. Now, my only fear about this series is that Connor, Stephen and the team at HarperCollins might be asking me why they're not in the book, but they're going to be released in August. Now, in the meantime, don't forget you can pre-order the book now, If you get it at eastons.com, there's links to that in the show notes below, and use the code FD10, you get 10% off. 
There's links, as I say, to that in the show notes below. That code is FD10. Now, though, let's get on to Edward O'Rourke. He's a complex guy with a complicated history. So Derek began with a bit about his background. This is important in terms of appreciating and understanding his later decisions and actions. Edward O'Rourke is, he's really big in Poland, in Gdańsk, in the northern Polish port city. He's, he's a hugely honoured figure. He was known in Polish as Edward Alexander Bratislaw O'Rourke, but he was actually born next door in present-day Belarus on October 26, 1876. I want to just jump in here because you're probably beginning to think the exact same thing I was when I first came across O'Rourke. How does someone born in Eastern Europe in the late 19th century get that name, Edward O'Rourke? Derek explains it here now. He was technically a count. He was a member of an aristocratic family that fled Ireland in the 17th century. And once they came to Europe, as many of these aristocratic families do, they, they clicked into the establishment that they found. And the O'Rourke's became very popular in the military, both in France and in Russia. And they picked up various imperial titles along the way, and they were granted various titles by the Russian Tsar. And yeah, Edward O'Rourke seems to have been very well connected. His father was a Count Michael O'Rourke, his grandfather, Joseph Cornelius O'Rourke. He, the, the line goes back, if you want, to Balnegarry Castle, County Limerick. So his great-grandfather, as far as I can tell, was Count Cornelius O'Rourke. And they're part of the De Lacy family from Balnagari Castle in County Limerick. His mother, Angelica von Bochwitz, was part of the Baltic German nobility. Now, the next question I asked Derek was a little off topic, and it does risk getting distracted from the focus of the show, but I think you'll appreciate it too. So I asked him whether the O'Rourke's, who lived near Minsk in modern-day Belarus, were proud or interested in their Irishness, like, say, the way the Irish in Britain or the US see it as part of their identity. I've asked historians about this. There's an Irish historian in Gdansk, Paul McNamara, and he says, on the one hand, he, O'Rourke seems to have been very interested in his Irish lineage, but it seems to have almost been stage Irish. One of his first recorded meetings with Sean Lester, uh, he was the Irish diplomat, and he was the head of the League of Nations representative, the high commissioner in the free city of Danzig. We can get into that detail later, but he was an Irish diplomat on the ground in Danzig, and he recalls meeting Edward O'Rourke in 1934. And this basically this Russian count turned bishop arrives in his office waving an Irish magazine, coughing his way through Irish cigarettes, which apparently were too primitive for his his aristocratic lungs. So he seems to have tried to sort of you know, flag his Irishness when it suited him. Apparently, he was in Ireland in the 1920s. I wasn't able to pin down an actual year. He apparently visited Leitrim on the search, researching his Irish ancestry. And he himself published a document called Documents and Materials for the History of the O'Rourke Family. And it was published in Danzig in 1925. But close ties, I wouldn't say so. But he, he struck up a friendship with Sean Lester in very difficult times. So even though I think their only common language was French. So here you have this, yeah, sort of Irish-American equivalent Russian count uh, with Irish background and an Irish diplomat striking up a friendship in, in the shadow of fascism. It, it would have been amazing to have been a fly on the wall in Gdansk in the 1930s. Just to add to this, after interviewing Derek, I became intrigued with O'Rourke and I came across an article from 1922 when he was interviewed by the Irish journalist Francis McCullough. On that occasion, O'Rourke, 
told McCullough that he spent every St. Patrick's Day at the Irish College in Rome, which indicated a continued connection of some kind to Ireland. However, I think we are getting distracted from the story at hand. But let's get back to O'Rourke's life and what led him to be a vocal critic of the Nazis. Now, as we have heard so far, he was born into a noble family where money was never an issue. So O'Rourke would eventually pursue several different careers in his early adulthood before eventually settling on the priesthood. He went to a Jesuit school in what was then Galicia in Austria-Hungary, now in Ukraine. Initially, he doesn't seem to have wanted to become a priest. He graduated from the Trade and Mechanics Faculty at the University of Riga. Then he studied law in Freiburg in Switzerland. And only then did he move on to Innsbruck in Austria for theology. So a very long, very stately third-level education and probably very expensive. He was ordained then finally in what is today's Vilnius in 1908. And he was also a professor there for church history, German and French, and was a parish priest, moved on to St. Petersburg. You see, he got around quite a bit. Now, Edward O'Rourke's world was turned upside down by the First World War. Having been born into the Russian aristocracy, the war would destroy the world as he knew it. He and families like his lost power, influence, and in many cases their lives in the Russian revolutions of 1917 and the subsequent civil war that followed. While the Russian aristocracy had been notoriously anti-Semitic before the war, their experiences of the revolution only drove them further to the right in the post-war world. And if anything, the conditions in Eastern Europe after the First World War only exacerbated this further. While the war ended in the West in 1918, Eastern Europe was ravaged by civil wars and social conflicts that claimed millions of lives until 1923. Without getting lost in the complexities of these wars, it does provide some context as to why Edward O'Rourke moved around in the aftermath of World War I before eventually settling in the city of Danzig, that's Gdansk in modern-day Poland. But Derek continues his story here. But really, things got interesting in 1918 when he became Bishop of Riga, which was the next year occupied by the Germans. So he got out of there and it was in 1920 when he arrived in the free city of Danzig, which is today's Gdansk. And he started there in a sort of an in-between role. And then he finally became archbishop when uh, Danzig became a diocese. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Danzig, that's modern-day Gdansk, 
would become one of the most politically turbulent and contested places in Europe in the 1920s and early 30s. Derek is going to talk us through the unique situation in the city, which belonged to no country because of its unique geographical position. Indeed, today we know it as Gdansk, but historically for centuries it was known as as Danzig, and it was it was German, but as part of the post-war settlement, the Versailles Treaty after the First World War, and the city of Danzig was considered so strategic with its port that it was separated from Germany, and it had a majority German population, a Polish minority, and it was surrounded by Polish territory, and because of it was just considered explosive, it was placed under the administration of the League of Nations. And this was unpopular from the start. And in hindsight, people would say it was doomed to failure. As the Nazis grew in strength in Germany, they also began to organise in the city of Danzig, taking control of the port. They then demanded the city be handed over to Hitler's Third Reich. Next, Derek is going to further explain the situation in the city and introduce a key figure Another Irishman, Sean Lester, who was an influential diplomat in the 1930s. In 1934, he was appointed High Commissioner in Danzig, the representative of the League of Nations in the city. He does become an important part of this story. They wanted the harbour to be returned to the Third Reich. And the Poles then, on the other hand, they were terrified. They just won their independence. So they were worried that if, if Danzig went back, to the Germans that would then have a a knock-on effect and it would undermine the independence of their Polish Republic that they only just won. So you have Sean Lester and then Archbishop O'Rourke basically as outsiders with a sort of a, yeah, social and political roles, expectations on them in a a situation that was rapidly falling apart. In this city where the Nazis were on the rise, O'Rourke's position as Archbishop gave him far greater powers than, say, an Archbishop in Ireland today. Even today, if you go to Poland, Polish priests and bishops are really political figures. And part of that has to do with history. I mean, many countries, including Ireland and elsewhere, Germany, where I am at the moment, I mean, priests and bishops were almost expected to be political figures in in pre-war, sort of in 1930s in the the Weimar Republic in Germany. There was no problem being a priest and and an MP in the Reichstag. Given his background in the Russian Empire, Initially, O'Rourke sided with the German population in the city, but this would change, as Derek explains. O'Rourke seems to have been very political. He, first of all, when he arrived, seems to have been very, probably with his sort of imperialist view of the world coming from from Russian imperial stock, he seems to have very much sided with the Germans in town. So they had the majority, but they were afraid that uh, they were surrounded by Poland. What if the Poles take over? So even though they were a majority, they had this minority paranoia or anxiety. So he seems to have sided with them. But I think as the Nazis grew in strength, he increasingly became mindful and took the side of the Polish minority. So politically, he was very much in terms of resources, in terms of security, in terms of rights. He seems to have been very a very political figure. Derek will explain more later in the episode. But O'Rourke became a vocal critic of the Nazis in Danzig in the 1930s. And how he came to this stance really interested me. If anything, his background would have left him with very different political instincts that were sympathetic to fascism. In tracing how he adopted his politics, Derek talked more about Sean Lister, that Irish diplomat who was High Commissioner in Danzig in the 1930s. He appears to have been a major influence on O'Rourke's thinking. Derek starts by explaining what Sean Lester was doing, his views and how they would influence 
O'Rourke. He warned early on to the League of Nations that the Nazis are slowly and surely using any means possible from a propaganda to absolute terrorism to terrorize their opponents. And what's happening in Danzig will happen the rest of Europe. Nobody really listened to Sean Lester at the time, but it seems that him and O'Rourke met regularly and they both agreed. O'Rourke was increasingly convinced by Lester's position that the Nazis in Danzig really were, were playing with fire and this was going to end disastrously. I asked Jerick more about O'Rourke's anti-Nazi views. I know I've returned to these a few times in the episode now, but I found this really interesting. Opposing fascism was not necessarily in O'Rourke's DNA. I've mentioned that he was a member of the Russian aristocracy who were frequently virulently anti-Semitic and deeply conservative. O'Rourke himself was an archbishop of the Catholic Church at a time when the papacy were also coming to an agreement with Hitler. However, Derek now explains the evolution in O'Rourke's thinking and how he became openly critical of the Nazis. From what I can tell, I mean, early on, he really shared the, the majority view inside, let's say, the, the universal Catholic Church, or at least in, in Europe, that the real enemy was the Bolsheviks, that Russia was the problem. And as somebody from who, who his, his privilege and identity was linked to the Tsar, the overthrow of that would have been very traumatic. And the idea that Bolshevism was going to take over Europe, and that was the real enemy. That was the view of, of many Catholic bishops and popes. Pacelli in particular was obsessed with this. And so was O'Rourke, it seems. But then on the ground, and definitely with Sean Lester in his ear, he seems to have adopted his views. And he suddenly realized, well, we can worry about Russia tomorrow, but what about Germany today, here, now, on our doorstep? And in his time, I, I turned up what I think are hopefully a full list. He wrote 22 pastoral letters. So these are letters from the archbishop to his flock, many of them he would have read out himself at mass. And in those, you can see, even just a cursory study of them, you can see how his concerns in the 1920s, he was worried about spiritual dangers of socialism, atheism, and so on. By the 1930s, he shifted his attention to what he, what he said he called a profane, quote, new religion born of the Germanic spirit end quote. So, and he said that this is trying to reframe Jesus Christ, who was a Jew, as, quote, a son illegitimate and stigmatized as a poisoner of the Germanic race. So at the time in Germany and elsewhere in German-speaking Europe, they're trying to square that circle. How can you be a Christian if the head of the church or the, uh, as if your savior was a Jew? So they were trying to pivot towards Adolf Hitler. He had no time for this. So he railed against this. In one letter I read, Bishop O'Rourke, he said, the cross from Golgotha should disappear, they say, from our towers. The cross of Odin should stand as a sign of victory. For him, this was just outrageous that somehow we should be putting up some sort of pagan symbols, some sort of Germanic pagan mishmash religion. And he said, true Catholics, quote, cannot accept as true the preached slogans of blood and race, which obviously is the Nazi ideology, because they mark, quote, a false approach contrary to Catholic teaching. Now, this was in the mid-30s. This is very, very early, because it took quite a long time for bishops in Germany to speak out, and, and there were only ever a few of them. So he seems really early on to have understood Danzig really was the laboratory for the Nazis. They were testing out things there that they would then try in, back in Germany and then elsewhere across Europe. And because it was the laboratory and because O'Rourke was plugged in, because he had the political link to Leicester, 
he seems to realize early on what was going on. They wanted a full grab for power, and they were prepared to flirt with an institution like the Catholic Church and stoke up their paranoia about Bolshevism. But as soon as they reached a tipping point, then they went for full control. And that, of course, didn't suit the Catholic Church because it felt it had its spheres of influence that that no ideology had a place trying to replace. This does beg the question, though, what was the basis of his opposition to the Nazis? It left me wondering, did O'Rourke oppose them because he saw them as a threat to the Catholic Church? Or did his opposition go further? This is where the story gets a bit more complicated. He does seem to flag the issue that it was very, I mean, anti-Semitism and, you know, the idea of Jews killed Jesus was very widespread and very popular in particularly in Catholic circles. So he, he wouldn't have been immune to that worldview, but he does reframe, you know, he says Jesus Christ was a Jew. So anyone who considers Jews illegitimate, they're attacking the legitimacy of our faith. So I, I would say, and this is a guess now, he was mostly concerned with the privileges of his institution and its role, its obligation to protect its flock, and also the, the dangers faced by uh, the Polish minority in Danzig. So he would have been looking at it with you know, his Russian imperialist view, glasses, but also with his church glasses. So I would presume those were his primary concerns, but the consequences, uh, the widespread consequences far beyond the institution for the people sitting in the pews, I think that's quite clear that was his concern. He seems in all of the letters I study, he's constantly telling people, do not be deceived by these people. Don't let your children go to the Nazi scouts, you know, the, the, the various, you know, the Nazis set up institutions to replace every other institution, including church, you know, re- religious or youth groups and so on. So he seems to be constantly telling people, don't be deceived, don't go along with it. So I, I sense there a real concern for people and not just a concern for an institution or for assets. Now, while he was a vocal critic of the Nazis in Danzig, the church hierarchy would effectively restrain O'Rourke. In July 1933, the Catholic Church had reached an agreement with the Nazi government in Berlin, which stipulated that the Catholic Church would remain aloof from politics, which included criticising the Nazis. The end of O'Rourke's time in Danzig is anticlimactic. He was released from his role by the Vatican and subsequently left the city. Derek takes up the story. The Nazis increased their power. They took control of of the town hall in Danzig. So this was a city-state. This was the parliament. And they convinced Rome, they convinced the Holy See that because of this, the concordat of the German concordat with the Holy See from 1933 should apply now in, in the free city of Danzig. And this was a disaster for somebody like Edward O'Rourke, because up until then, he was operating under Polish rules, which allowed him quite a, le- a lot of leeway priest and politician or politician bishop under the Concordat of 33, which was organized by Pacelli, who was the papal nuncio of the Holy See to Berlin in the early Hitler years. He negotiated with Hitler personally. He later became Pope Pius XII in 1939. This Concordat was a disaster for people like O'Rourke or other political minded priests in Germany because they were banned from the political sphere. One of the real crucial deals that Hitler struck was that priests and clerics could no longer be political figures. What did that mean? It meant in Gdansk, suddenly O'Rourke's hands were tied and he still used the pulpit to speak out increasingly loudly against the threats he saw, but he couldn't really intervene as far as I can tell in day-to-day political life because that was, he was banned by his own people, by the Pope. 
and the Holy See released him from his role in, in June 1938. So we're talking just over a year before Germany invaded Poland. But he didn't leave Poland. He may have left Danzig in the Baltic Sea, but he moved to, uh, to Poznan in the West. And there he renounced his Danzig citizenship. Remember, this was a, a city-state. And he became a Polish citizen. But just over eight years ago, he fled to Rome and he died there. I asked Derek if O'Rourke had fallen out with the papacy over his criticism of the Nazis in Danzig. He doesn't seem to. I think if he had fallen out completely with the Holy See, I'm not sure if he would have ended up in Rome. And it was his instinct uh, to go back there. Well, where else was he going to go? He, you know, Ireland was sort of more an idea of identity rather than a real home. You know, Stalin's Soviet Union, definitely not. He spent his years in Danzig fighting the Nazis. So I, I suppose Rome was, the, was, the, was his last refuge. And he died there 80 years ago. In hindsight, it might seem O'Rourke's opposition didn't go far enough, given what happened in the following decade. But maybe that's only the value of hindsight. I think if we judge O'Rourke on his own terms, in his own time, he does deserve credit. In the 1930s, the only ones who had tried to physically stop the Nazis coming to power was the German left. Both wings of this movement, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, and the KPD, the Communist Party, had effectively been destroyed by the Nazis and tens of thousands of their members had been sent to concentration camps. Comparing O'Rourke, though, to their standard is not useful. He did not have the life experiences or aims that members of these parties had. He was, by instinct, a very conservative individual and given most of his contemporaries in the church across Europe were still defending the Nazis when he was criticising them. This does mark him apart. Indeed, He's a celebrated figure in Poland today, as Derek explained. In 1972, his remains were removed from Rome and brought back to what is now Gdańsk and the Oliva Cathedral, which is where he would have preached. And his remains were interred there, which is on the one hand a nice gesture, but on the other hand, this is the height of the Cold War. This is really complicated stuff. I would be fascinated to know what, how that came about and the absolute diplomatic hoops people had to jump through to make this happen. But the fact that it did happen shows to me just how much he was revered by people in Poland who hadn't forgotten how he had stood up for them early on when the rest of the world didn't really pay them much heed. I want to thank Derek for what was a fascinating conversation. I have links to various articles Derek has written that relate to this topic in the show notes below. That's where I'm going to leave it for now. I'm off to prepare for my record. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market of a lethal legacy a history of ireland and 20 murders but i will have something for you next week until then sloan <laughs>